0: So you want to know the ins and outs of managing your money. Well, lucky for you, you're just in time for another episode of Master Your Finances with certified financial planner professional, Kurt Baker. Kurt and his panel of experts are here for you and will cover topics from a legal and personal standpoint. They'll discuss tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money, and more. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course At Ryder University. Now, let's learn how we can better change our habits with Kurt Baker.
1: Do you like shopping around to find a good deal? Do you like finding shortcuts that save you time and money? You may not realize this, but many of the colleges your child applies to are going to offer you discounted tuition in the form of needs-based aid and merit-based aid. Unfortunately, applying for these discounts is difficult and time-consuming, and universities are not always transparent about how they award aid. Ryan Vazisky, the founder of College Financial Guide, is here to provide you with a simple and easy framework to understand this confusing system. Colleges will likely be your... Largest or second largest expense, but Ryan is here to make sure you know how to pay as little as possible and avoid the pitfalls along the way. Yeah, Ryan, this is this is kind of a major thing that I think that um, at least my own experience, like going to college and so forth, is that um, once you like the child's interested, right? And now you're like they're going around looking at the college. I know it's kind of a complex process. Of course, the parents are like, well, if they choose college A, it's going to cost this much. College B, it's going to cost this much. But actually, the process can be much more systematic and actually have a better match for the child as far as your cost as a parent, as far as what is actually ap- applicable for your child, what they want to go to. So you want to tell us a little bit of like what you did and how you got involved in this process? Absolutely. So as much as I teach these things, I have four children. So oh.
2: this is soon to be a huge factor in my lifestyle choices. And I found that a lot of people, when they're saving for their retirement, the biggest hurdle they face is college expenses. Where, you know, if you don't, if you make the wrong choice, either you or your child could really if impact their future. So, that's where I like to focus in—not on the sticker price, right? Because it's not about—it's just like going to a car lot. You know, you're not going to pay the sticker price. Schools are going to offer a discount, but it's knowing which schools. Are going to want your child and which schools are going to offer you more money that's where i really get into this process and that's where i teach parents to be smart shoppers you know to look and see which school for your child is going to offer the best all-in package a aka the lowest net cost and something that'll also work for what you've saved
1: right so when when i guess when you start off the process like your child sometimes will have an idea of where they want to go all right. So I, fi- I, fi- I find there's maybe two scenarios. One is I have no idea what I do, but I, I want to go to college and let's figure this out. And I know parents that travel all over the country, visiting different colleges, where others are like, hey, I want to go to this school and maybe this is my backup and then I may apply to a few others just in case. Um, so how do you handle like those two different scenarios where the one kind of I know exactly where I want to go and assuming I get in now, now what do I do? Okay. So you're kind of uh, the eager buyer, so to speak, right? Well, I really want to get in. So how much, uh, you know, how does that kind of work? Right.
2: So. Sometimes parents do fall in love with a school or children will fall in love with a school and they'll say, this is exactly where we want to go. I still encourage them to look at similar options because what will happen is other schools that are similar may give you a better offer. And you can leverage that against the school that you want to go to. But the second thing I'll say is don't fall in love too much because sometimes the schools don't love you back. And so (laughs) that school that you went all in on they may not offer you anything, especially if it's a big public university and it's out of state. And I've had that happen with clients before. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other scenario. I have no idea where I want to go. Well, I'd encourage you to really sit down and think about what are your priorities? What do you want to study? What school is going to be the best fit for your type of major? And that's a good starting point to start making a list. Right. A big mistake parents make is sometimes they'll only look at the state schools. Mm -hmm. They won't consider the private schools because they'll say, oh, it's $80,000. There's no way we could afford $80,000 a year. Well, little known secret, that number comes down quite a bit, especially if your child is in the top 25% of the applicant pool. So that's an important factor to consider when you go to
1: look at this. Now, I recall, like, when we were first, like, during the COVID process, we were coming out of it, and it actually, but a lot of people don't realize is, is, I mean, I'll take out the Ivy League schools for a minute, because they're never a buyer's market, and they're, you know, but it became a little bit of a buyer's market for the majority of schools. In fact, you hear about colleges, actually, some of the smaller ones having trouble, and some of them even closing. Um, so, you're a little bit in the driver's seat, not not totally, but I remember, they, I think it might have been, I may be wrong about the state, but I believe it was New Hampshire, they were starting to offer... Uh, in-state tuition to out-of-state residents purely to try to bring them into their schools because they were trying to fill up the classrooms and so forth. And I think that started to spread once they did it. So there's a little bit of this competitive thing going on across state lines where it used to be, hey, you had to be a resident of the state to get that price. But that's not necessarily the case, uh, it sounds like, where, as far as the negotiation side goes. It really
2: depends on the school and where you fit within their applicant class and how much they want you. Mm-hmm. So There are schools that will offer you in-state tuition if you're an out-of-state student. It all depends on the school and where they are that year and what they're looking for. I mean, keep in mind, they do this game all day long. Many colleges hire consultants behind the scenes to help you to figure out exactly how much you're gonna pay. Mm -hmm. And so their goal is to get the right student that's a good fit, and your goal is to put your child in the best situation possible. To do, to include the right things, to know what the mission of the school is, and to tailor your application so that it reflects those things that are important to the school.
1: And I guess getting into the mission and this in the right school and so forth, I think you know a lot of it has to do with like what are they ta- what are they really focusing on? Because you know every you know colleges don't they may say they're like all oh, things to all people, but they're really not. So each school tends to have certain specialties, like it might be engineering, it might be nursing, it might be. Uh, you know, certain majors tend to kind of rise above like all the others as well. So how does that kind of fit into the scenario where let's say the college focuses on something I might be interested in? Let's say I want to be a nurse as an example. Um, Is that, that would probably come into this calculation about how, where I want to apply and what I might want to do. I'll say that's a double-edged sword because actually some schools will admit
2: fewer students and offer less aid for a major that's very popular. Mm -hmm. If you look at Penn State as an example, Penn State, if you go to apply for engineering or business, you're actually gonna have a lower admit rate and be more likely to to get accepted into a branch campus as opposed to main campus. But if you chose something that was less popular initially, get the grades for a couple of years, then you could transfer over into that business major. But ultimately, the key factor is, it's a numbers game, right? It's your child's GPA, it's their test scores, and it's, depending on the school you apply to, whether that school is going to offer you need-based aid or merit-based aid. And what percent of that need-based aid is free money as opposed to loans? That's the dirty thing that you don't really see is a lot of times you'll get that that award letter, Mm quote-unquote, and you'll find out, oh, by the way, they're factoring in student loans as a big part of this
1: package. They're not really giving me very much free money. Oh, right. Yeah, I've seen some of these letters where they say, well, your cost is, you know, here's the cost of the school, and it's X, but they've already included things they're assuming you're getting. Like, they might figure you're actually taking out a loan for part of this, and things like that. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I didn't, wasn't planning that part of it. And they're, like, basically bringing the cost down. Well, here's your actually out-of-pocket, but they're not actually telling you that part of that out-of-pocket minus was really a loan that you're taking out as well. Right. So you have to be really careful about reading these award letters because they're not all written. Not, there's no standardization on how these are written, so you have to understand, like, what they're saying and what they're including and what they're not including. Um, So, right? Right. That's my understanding from the ones I've seen.
2: And then there's one more complicating factor, which is if you're a family that doesn't have means, if you're a family that is true financial need, making sure that you can get enough aid to finish school. A lot of kids will get to year two, year three, and if their parents don't have good credit scores or if their parents aren't in the picture, they can really get in trouble where they'll run out of the ability to borrow money and then they'll end up at the last minute, kind of scrambling to see what sources they can get loans from to finish school. It's a sad situation,
1: right? So they don't necessarily—they're not really committing to the entire process necessarily. It's like you got in for this year, but based on what occurs during the year, you may or may not get similar things the following year. That's right, right? So that you're taking a little bit of a risk as far as that process goes. You have to be aware of that. Um, so I mean, you mentioned two different areas of the of the need. So one is. Maybe we'll break these down a little bit. One is the needs-based aid, of course, and that's for people that are truly like have lower income or middle income. I mean, lower income these days is not necessarily what most of us think of as low income, but it's low enough for the colleges, right? And then you have the merit-based aid, which is a little bit different, which I think is sometimes misunderstood as well. So I guess why don't we start off with the need-based aid and what kinds of things are available for people that might need the funding to actually help them get into the college and pay for it. So the one place that this can be a bit of a
2: misnomer is people think – oh, well, our middle class income is too high. There's no way right. we're going to get need-based aid from the school. But you have to keep in mind these are all artificial numbers. So right now the schools will calculate what's called an expected family contribution. That's based on the parents' income and assets and the students' income and assets. You fill, That's when you fill out the FAFSA. That's the number that they spit out at the end. hmm then they'll take the cost of attendance of the school minus that expected family contribution and they'll get you this number that says need. From there, schools will meet a percentage of need depending on their track record. So some schools, especially private schools with a big endowment, will meet 100% of need. Others will meet 50 to 60%, but that's still not a guarantee because sometimes schools won't offer you any even if you're a family with a very low expected family contribution. That's going to change in the near future. They're moving to something called the student aid index, and they're simplifying the FAFSA, so fewer questions. Mm-hmm. But they do, they're doing this because people think, oh, you really think I could write a check for that expected family contribution, when in fact it's just a way to
1: index how much aid they're going to give. Okay, that's interesting. I, I know you spoke about the FAFSA a little bit, so I want to like, reference a little bit. Sometimes they misunderstand like, what's included as far as specifically the assets that are included. When somebody fills out the form, like, well, we have way too much in assets, they're not going to do that. But in fact, they may have something like a large retirement account, a big 401k plan, things like that, which is very common. So can you explain a little bit about how they actually calculate the assets as far as what's available to pay for college? Absolutely.
2: So the look at the parents' adjusted gross income Okay, so if you're a business owner or you're somebody that has a corporation where you know, more money flows into adjusted gross income, that's a big factor in the calculation. They'll also look at your liquid assets. So that would be your cash, your brokerage accounts, savings CDs, the types of things that are not locked up in retirement. Right. That's the factoring from the parent side. And then from the student side, and this is unfortunate, but if you make above 3,000 a year, and or if you have over 3000 in assets as a student, they'll say that that really
1: weighs heavily against you. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Well, that's very fascinating. We have to take a quick break here. You're listening to Master Your Finances. We'll be right back.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step.
1: Welcome back. you listen to Master Your Finances. I'm here with Ryan Visnitsky, and we're talking about a big expense in people's lives that have college uh, have students that are going to be college bound because uh, many of us want to go to college because that's one way to uh, increase your lifetime wealth. And so um, the, I think there's some misunderstandings about uh um, how aid is calculated and and how the actual offer letters are sent. I know when people send offer letters, it can be very confusing as far as what you actually have to pay out of pocket. So it's it's helpful just to have somebody help you decipher that so you can compare different offers from different colleges. And it, it almost feels like they do this intentionally. It just feels that way because they're using their own formula. And then when you try to put two letters next to each other, one may look higher than the other one. In fact, it might be lower than the other when you actually make in all the calculations. So I think that's really important to understand when you're actually comparing the costs. And so when we started off, we really were when we start, left the break, we were talking about how you fill out the FAFSA and how certain assets are included in the calculation as far as the parents go, but also as far as the child goes, right? So you want to pick up for that, where that you left off there about the child.
2: Absolutely. So.
1: Absolutely. So.
2: It, it, it really is, a, it's unfortunate because you disadvantage a child that's entrepreneurial or you disadvantage a child that maybe they're contributing to the household expenses, right? So ultimately, you want to make sure that you don't leave assets in your child's name. And that includes, you know, uniform trust to minor accounts, the types of things that will be disclosed in the FAFSA, because that is going to count, that's going to count against you. Mm-hmm. You'd be better off just taking that money and rolling it into a 529 or making another move that'll move it out of your child's name and into yours. Even if it's with the understanding that, hey, this is your money. It's just in our name. Right. Yeah,
1: let's move it over. Right. Yeah, so it is important how you hold the assets to make sure. So it's really important to understand that the FAFSA form in its current state and you also mentioned they're going to do some updates to the form itself. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're looking at or what we might be seeing as far as changes go when they come out with the new form? Absolutely. So I would say the main beneficiaries of the change
2: are the people that have total need right that will receive need-based aid from just about everywhere they apply because they're going to lower the minimum expected family contribution and they're going to raise the the income require the income levels where they give Pell grants. The other change that's going to happen is they're going to significantly reduce the number of questions and they're going to eliminate a couple of things that have helped some of the families I work with. For example, divorced parents will now have to, will now have to disclose both incomes and assets where before it's just the custodial parent that have to do it. The second big change is they're going to ask more detailed questions about family-owned businesses where right now you just put a net value of the business.
1: Okay, any idea like what they're after as far as the family owned business goes? They're looking for like the the true value of the business that they're trying to figure out?
2: I think they're getting more into the um, cash, the assets of the business, where before it would just be like a net worth calculation that would be net assets minus net liabilities. So they are gonna drill into that a little bit further and it is gonna count against families, where right now it doesn't count as heavily.
1: Okay, well it's you know it's interesting as a business owner because sometimes at least the businesses I'm aware of and have been I've been involved in the cash in the business is typically there for a reason because you're running the business. It's right. not necessarily available for you to spend as a family. So that'll be very interesting to see how they come up uh, with that and and then you mentioned the divorced parents. I know uh, just some experiences through my time is that you you've got various situations where maybe there's a friendly quote a friendly divorce financially where they're both willing to contribute to the college education and things like that. So if we if we're calculating in both parents, now you have maybe one where it may not be quite as willing to pay for the college. Let's just put it that way, and the other one's like, hey, look, we really need to take care of this and somehow take care. And so now if they're adding all this together, how do you, how do you see that impacting like the decision that the child's going to have to come? Because you have one, let's say, you have one parent that's very wealthy, like they end up they have a business, you know, maybe they have a little more wealth. Good betting on the time frame, right? and the other parent may be a little bit lower, they have to divide the payment of the college typically is how that works, right? Right, so that's
2: a case where it really needs to be either in the divorce agreement or some type of settlement afterwards, you know, how college is gonna get paid for, and it's a huge sticking point. And for a lot of divorce attorneys that I've spoken with, it's something that can really hold up the final settlement. But ultimately, it's best to have that spelled out up front, and it's also best to settle, okay, whose name are the 529 assets in and making some sort of legal arrangement that guarantees that that money is going to go to the child and not be used for
1: another child or another source. Okay. Well, that's good. That's great advice. So um, touched on one thing real quick. Do you want to explain how, what the Pell Grants are and how those work? So essentially Pell Grants have a income
2: limitation. And if you come in below that, You'll get a supplemental grant from the federal government it's calculated during the fafsa process and it'll be factored into your final aid award from the university just like they'll also include things like work study and other programs like that Um, they'll also tell you if you're going to get subsidized or unsubsidized federal loans if you get subsidized loans that means they're going to they're not going to charge you interest during the time you're in school if it's unsubsidized, the interest clock will start running as soon as you take the money out, and then you can either pay that interest only during your time in college, or you
1: can wait and let that roll up until the end. Okay. Well, that sounds like it make it, make it a little bit easier. So, um, let's say I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm a higher income person and I need to uh, fund the college. What type of lending is typically available for those that? want to borrow money that, uh, for their student, for their college, whether it's the student themselves or whether maybe it's the parents want to take out loans. So what types of right. things are, are available out there for that? So after the federal loans, a lot of times they'll suggest going right to
2: what are called Parent PLUS loans. That's where you co-sign with your child, and then you borrow money. The challenge being, of course, like I said, if, you, if your parents have poor credit, that can be a challenge to get those Parent PLUS loans and to qualify. Um, There's also private loans available at banks. But another resource people don't always consider is going to the state higher educational authority. So um, in Pennsylvania, it's PHEAA in New Jersey. um, I don't remember exactly what it is, but if you look in New Jersey higher education authority, Mm -hmm. they actually have loan programs available there as well that have lower interest rates. And some of them, you can actually just get in your student's name. So I always recommend to families... Go look at those programs, and also there's a lot of New Jersey grant programs available to parents that look, and especially if you're a first generation college student or you're somebody that um, is
1: otherwise from, you know, a lower socioeconomic status community. You bring up a great point here, um, which I was going to ask you about. Let's assume I'm, I'm a very entrepreneurial young child, but I i I'm a you know, very disadvantaged family. It's had a rough time. Maybe their credit's not so great, but I still really want to go to college, right? And, and I'm pretty much going to be carrying this thing on my own. My parents really can't be involved. They're just unable to be involved or don't want to be, whatever the case may be. What are some ways like that young person really should like plan as much as they can for when it comes time to go to college? What are some points for them to think about? I would say the main thing is
2: focusing on programs where you can get your college tuition covered, looking at ways that you can get credits before you start school, looking at community college programs, you know, do two years at the community college. Sometimes you can get scholarships to the community college and then you come in with a lot of credits and you only have to do two years at the university. Uh, If you're okay with the military thing, which I know is a dicey subject these days, you can also look into ROTC scholarships. You can get phenomenal benefits from the federal government if, you're, if you enro- get, can qualify for an ROTC scholarship and get into a place, they'll cover your entire tuition, they'll pay you a stipend while you're in school, and then you do have mandatory military service afterwards, but it's still a great program if you're a family that needs it or if you're entrepreneurial
1: and you need it. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that we've experienced ourselves was that, and we learned a lot about this, the community college oftentimes will have some of the major colleges literally on campus. So you may actually have them teaching on the campus. And as you point out, they can actually transfer, like they have partnerships with, I know in our case, it was Mercer Community College has a partnership with TCNJ as an example. So our daughter went to community college for two years, did really, really well, and then was able to transfer to TCNJ and graduate with a TCNJ uh, degree. And so those are becoming much more readily available from what I'm seeing over time. Is that something you see people doing? That's correct, absolutely so, who typically does
2: that that you're saying, as far as I? It's really just a matter of, again, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's choosing the way that makes the most sense for your family and fits your family situation. You know, a family that um, hasn't saved for college, has low income, that doesn't have the assets to pay for it. you know their their situations can be a lot different. Than somebody that let's say is more affluent, that you know they could write a check for college. They just want to write less of a check. Mm-hmm. But in any situation, there's a lot of ways that you can reduce the college costs. Um, we also you, know, you touched upon merit-based aid. So if you have somebody that's a good student, and I would say this applies across the spectrum. And good student, I would say starts at three five or above GPA, and I would say it starts you know, 1350 and above on SATs or the ACT. In those situations, you really want to look into finding a good SAT tutor. Mm -hmm. You know, having somebody that can help boost that SAT score by 200 points can make a huge difference in what awards you're available for. You know, I come across parents that they'll miss out on a program that will offer them substantial discount over 10 or 15 points. Oh, wow. Or 10 or 20 points. And I'm like, you know, uh, that investment in two tutoring could have
1: gotten you over that hump. Wow, amazing. Well, that's awesome, Ryan. Uh, You're listening to Master Your Finance. We're going to take another quick break.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, certified financial planner professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Finance. I'm here with uh, Ryan Visnitsky, and we're talking about planning for college and getting ready to to bring them in. So, um, I mean, what I've noticed is there's a, there's a couple areas here. I mean, this was just our own personal experience. Of course, I handled the financial aspect of it, but what, what was interesting about was the actual admission pro- process itself. I ended up hiring a coach specifically to get my my daughter involved in the process because, as a third party, somehow that seemed to work better, even though I had the information quote unquote. Um, a lot of times. In this, And I know in our case, it helped a lot because they tend to be, they don't come in with any predetermined opinion about what's happening and they tend to have a much um, broader look at the landscape of what's available out there. Whereas parents, I know that was probably my case and my wife's, we, we had certain ideas about what we were thinking, right? And of course, the child here growing up. So we found it beneficial to hire a third party ourselves purely as you know, kind of almost like a mediator and an expediter in making, uh, helping the child get involved. So. I'm, I'm all about having a consultant on this. I, I know I've seen the benefits and I know it resulted in a better experience for us personally, as well as other clients that I've had do this. So how do you start the process and what do you, you know, somebody says, hey, look, I have a college, somebody going to college, when would they want to start talking to somebody? Um, in your opinion, as far as getting the consultant involved, what's the ideal time to do so? Sure. So I'll generally say that freshman year is too early
2: because the need really isn't present yet and you're really thinking high level, your child likely might be thinking about college but really isn't thinking seriously about it. I would say at that point, you're really just trying to think about activities and what you're gonna put onto the resume. 10th grade, that's where things start to get really interesting because parents don't always start that early, but I would highly recommend that you do, A, just start a resume. of what your child has done in terms of extracurricular activities, be it paid work or unpaid work. I'd recommend that you have your child do 50 hours a year of community service. That sounds like a lot, but you can knock that out in the summer, and it's something that really looks good on your resume. And bonus points, if you can t- if you could tie that in to whatever your choice of major is going to be later on. And then also sophomore year, that's when you really wanna start working with an SAT tutor and start taking the exams. And you wanna make sure you have some interesting experience. If you don't have one, then you should think about how to manufacture one. Because at the end of the day, you're gonna to have to put that into an essay. Mm. So you don't wanna be like everybody else and just say, well, my son's on three travel teams and you know is in the chess club. It's always good to have something a little different or unique that your child has done. You know, for example, a ch- one of my clients, his son has been fixing computers since he was a kid. Oh, you know? wow. So I was like, this is great. That's a great experience. You know, let's flesh that out and let's talk about that as a, something to grab onto. But I'll also say it's a good time, sophomore year or junior year, to really start talking finances. To make the moves that you need to make. To know where do you fall on the need-based aid and the merit-based aid spectrum and where do you need to get to to get onto that college list that you wanna have? And that's when I really start working with parents to to understand that process, and that's where we'll go through for each of the colleges on your list, and for colleges that may not be on your list, where do you fall in the applicant pool? Are you at the higher end? Are you in the middle, or are you at the lower end? And if you're at the lower end, well, maybe we need to look another rung down at universities that
1: don't have as stringent application requirements and that might be a better fit. Right, because a lot of this data is out there, which I, I don't think people understand. I mean, back at least when I was applying for college, I kind like, of, ah, take a shot at this one or that one. But now, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of data available. And I know the people are, that do this uh, for a living, you can literally drill down and say, hey, here's kind of the average SAT scores. Here's, the other, you know, here's all the other metrics that maybe uh, that they're looking at as far as who they're admitting or who they have been admitting. And that gives you at least a rough idea of your likelihood of getting into that school. Now, I touched on SAT, and you so did you real quickly, but I have, I've also heard that some schools are not using those scores currently. How does that impact this process, or is it just like one factor you just remove? Does it matter that much, or how does that affect you as far as your process goes? So it is true that there are schools that are calling themselves test optional, and
2: some truly are. But for the most part, I advise just taking it anyway. Right. It can only help you. And if it's test optional and you don't want to disclose it, it's not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I've had students with special needs that, you know, maybe their math scores are very low or maybe they have trouble with reading. So that's where I would say get them up to like a minimal level. And that way, you know, if anything else, it can help you avoid having to take like remedial classes before you start
1: university, okay.
2: which is a tough situation.
1: Okay. So still take the test anyway, even though you hear these things, it's not really that widespread, so it's still valuable. Right.
2: Because, again, even though schools say test optional, you look at the merit-based awards that they have, and a lot of them are around SAT scores. So you may think, oh, this score isn't good enough, but I've seen merit awards that start at like 1,100, okay. 1,200. Right. So doesn't it hurt to try and try more than once. and. Who knows? You know, whatever that best combined score is, that's what you're going to get.
1: Okay. Well, that's good advice. Um, okay. So, uh, I know from my, I know from our, the financial aspect, we tell people like, you know, you have the baby shower and then you, you, you plan for the college expen- expense. <laughs> it's kind of at the same time. Um, but as far as the actual planning for the specific college, when you're trying to nail down like where you're going to go. So now that I've started this process, let's say I come to you, and you know we're tenth, eleventh grade. So now what are we doing next? Like how are we going through and screening for the different types of things that we're going through? Sure. So I have a software
2: that gathers in all the data from the different universities across the country. And this isn't a database. You can access the database, but I'll tell you, it is not user-friendly, and it's very complicated to try to get through everything. So what this software does is it pulls it all together. I'll take income and asset information from the parents and the student, And then we'll look at what colleges are on your list right now, and I'll give them a general sense of where you're going to fall with the expected family contribution, whether you're likely to receive need-based aid or not, and then based on your test scores now, whether you're likely to qualify for merit-based aid. And then I'll talk to them about, you know, why this list, you know, and that's essentially what I do in the free consultation. Mm -hmm. And then if parents decide to work with me, then we'll get into a lot more detail and we'll work to make the moves to put them in a better position, expand the list and really build it out. And what they'll get at the end is they'll get a similar to a financial plan right? where it gathers all of your information in one place. It shows you exactly, you know, for each of your schools, what merit options are out there and for each of your schools, what need based aid they're going to offer and gives you a picture of the net costs. Of the universities then we'll work through your budget we'll see what can you really afford relative to the net cost of the schools you're looking at maybe you need to consider an alternative option so that you're not overextending yourself and borrowing too much maybe you and your wife need to be on the or maybe the spouses need to be on the same page as far as who's going to pay how much we're going to pay versus how much the student's going to pay you know i've come across parents that say well it's all on my kids Well, if you put it all on your kids, you have to know what the financial consequences are gonna be for them, because you don't want them to walk out with 120,000 in debt and a huge debt payment, especially if it's a major that they're not gonna have that an outcome coming out.
1: Right, no, I I agree. So um, yeah, getting everybody involved. So I think one thing that I find fascinating, at least when you do some of these searches, um, I I know you can put in things like their interests, like what types of areas they're interested in. And when you put in this information, um, sometimes you would come up maybe surprised at some of the schools that you come up with, right? Have you ever seen you know, like this experience where it's like, hey, maybe I'm interested in being, I don't know, let's say a writer or something like that, and you're like, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, I don't know. I know TC&J teaches writing. I know that. So that's where I want to go. But what may, there might be better schools, frankly. Right. And, you, and you may get a better price and not even realize that that's something they do pretty well. And that, that goes back to what we talked
2: about earlier in the conversation. You know, sometimes people fall in love with a school But they don't realize there's another school they can fall in love with, too, that has similar characteristics, similar attributes. Maybe it's a smaller school. Maybe it's one you haven't heard of, but still offers a lot of what you want and will be a better financial fit. So that's why it's important to look holistically at this and not just to look at the academic or the social aspects or the brand name. Right. Or, you know, they wow you with the college tour and the great catered food (laughs) when you really need to think about making a good
1: financial decision. Right, I agree, because that, that helps you get that first, you know, maybe the name helps a little bit, but I mean, long-term, it's more about the education of what they taught you while you were there, so you can take that forward, because really life is about, a, it, it's in a, it, a long-term education process throughout life. I mean, that's just one step on the, on the learning ladder, so to speak, in my opinion, right? Right, and then geography also plays a factor as well. You know,
2: a lot of parents are sending their kids south, that used to go to a northeast school mm-hmm. for any number of reasons be it fun be it you know lower costs or just better weather or whatever the case may be maybe it's a good football school well keep in mind your kids are probably going to get a job in around and want to stay in that area right so you know you might want to talk them into looking at schools in the geography where you are if
1: you want them to stay close to home Interesting. All right. That's great advice. We're going to take another quick break. You're listening to Master Your Finances. We'll be right back.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money, and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Finance. I'm here with Ryan Visnitsky, and uh, we're talking about college education, uh, how to get in and get the right fit at the right price. And uh, Ryan's been working on this, and I know it can be a little bit overwhelming to parents and students alike when you're like, hey, I want to go to college, but wow, there's just so many different options out there. Um, And now you've gone through this process where you're like, hey, at least I have some basic idea of what area of the world I'd like to work in, whether it's a writer, an engineer, an artist, whatever the case may be. And so let's narrow it down to some schools that might do pretty well by you and and fit in with your your profile and your parents' profile. Um, And now you get a couple offers on the table. I send them back to you. They might be very confusing because they're all written totally differently. And now you compare them, and you're like, okay, here's what we want to do. I want to get the best price, and let's figure out which of these schools is going to work out best for us. Now we're going to try to negotiate. So how does that work? Because most people don't realize you can actually negotiate with the schools. That's like their offer. Right. You went in and bought a car. Here's the price. And you're like, well, that's good, but maybe we'll do this instead. So how does that process work? Well, one key piece of terminology to keep in mind
2: is never use the word negotiation in the letter that you write to them. You always <laughs> want to say reconsideration or reconsider. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the process depends on the school you're applying to. I always recommend reaching out to the admissions counselor and asking them what is the process at your university for for reconsidering a financial aid offer. And what you wanna do is you wanna craft a letter, you want it to be something written in the name of your student and have them actually draft it. Always say thank you at the beginning. Then you wanna list the factors to be reconsidered. So is there a huge expense your family's gonna get hit with is there somebody that has a sickness or a problem or something that is showing up in your financial records that isn't accurate you know hey we have this fifty thousand in cash but we have it because we're buying a house this year mm-hmm. or we had it because you know our income looks really high but it's because i had to pull money out of my 401k to pay for some you know big expense but there's also looking at the, the different offer letters you have and saying, I received an offer for a better offer from another school, or you just ask for more money. You just say, you know, to make this work financially for our family, we need this amount of a discount. I recommend putting a specific number in there per year that you want to ask for. And then finally you close it by saying thank you and you send it off. This doesn't need to be a, another essay. It doesn't need to be perfectly manicured and, you know, reviewed. And it also doesn't need to be a narrative of your life story and all the problems that have ever happened to you like a country music song. Keep it simple. Keep it short. They're reading a lot of these things. Make it memorable. If there is another offer that you receive that's better, like let's say it's two competing universities, you can present that offer and say, hey, can you match
1: this? So, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Is it a good idea to say, especially if they're like rivals, like, hey, you know, Rowan just gave me this and, you know, <laughs> maybe they gave me this. and um, So does, does that is that OK? As long as you do it in a nice way, I'm assuming, right? You Absolutely. You'd be kind Absolutely. about it, right?
2: Yeah. You, you can definitely include the offer you receive from another school. And that gives you a little more heft and credibility as you make the ask. And generally speaking, they have discretionary dollars for this. They know it's coming. But... It's just like anything else. If you don't ask, you don't receive. You know, even 3000 a year, 4000 a year, an extra award times four, I mean, that is
1: well worth it to write a, a short letter. Now, yeah, you spoke about that, how you, for the, the short letter we're talking about per year. Now, in this letter, because usually it's their offers for like one year, right? So it's for this coming year. Can you address the fact that you want to be there for more than one year? Can that be also addressed up front so that like you don't get in and then also the next year you can't afford it? Well, it's... It is something that you ask for a number per year
2: and you are asking them to, let me think about how to phrase this, but ultimately what I would say is you're asking with the implication that it's going to be renewable for four years. Right. You're not asking for a single year and they know based on what you've listed in the letter that if it doesn't work for you this year, it's not going to work for you next year or the following years.
1: Okay, so it's kind of like built into the the process. They're kind of understanding that hey, look, this really is kind of over the time frame we're likely to, you know, al- go along those lines once we commit to it up front. It Correct. Like. Okay, so, uh, and that's and that's
2: where you re- and that's where, especially if it's a one-time, receipt of income, mm-hmm. or it's a one-time, um, big expense, you want to make sure it's disclosed. You want to make sure they know about it and they can consider that in their
1: decision. Now, you mentioned you have four children let's let's just assume for one moment they' were all the same age and they're all going to college at the same year now would this be something that colleges would take into consideration when they're when you're when they're because sometimes they overlap right like let's say I have one let's say they're one every year for the next four years so now I've got like seven years or eight years of, of kids going to college does that play into this process as well to some degree so it does currently I've heard that in the new
2: formula they're not going to take that into account but I have to say I don't have a lot of specific specific information yet and i think a lot of it's still being determined okay because that would be kind of rough especially if you have three or four kids going to college at the same time that would be difficult at this point i'm going to have two kids in college assuming everybody does the four-year plan right but if anybody goes longer or there's another graduate school or whatever the
1: case may be that's going to be you know, three or four kids in college that's we'll another see. that's another factor you just brought up that we probably should discuss is that they also talk about how long their typical student takes to graduate so if the average if you look at the different colleges and one says yeah they on average they graduate whatever 4.2 years or something like that whereas one other one's like 5.5 years you could literally be committing to potentially another years worth of expenses and not really understanding that hey wait if, if people that go to the school don't typically graduate in four years, that's not good for me because I may have a whole other year of expenses to send them for one more year. Right.
2: That's exactly right. And you also have to consider the retention rate. You don't want to send your child to a school where, you know, 50 or 60% of the freshmen move on a sophomore year. Because what if you're in that other category where mm-hmm. they're not going to make it through the four years at the school? Well, then you're looking at transferring i'll often add a semester or two or what if your child's just not into college you don't want to force them you know there's a lot of great options as far as trades are concerned and that type of thing and you can always go back later as an adult with a better appreciation of what your dollar can buy and what you want to study as opposed to you know forcing your kid you know let's say a square peg into a round hole and then they get in and they drop out after a
1: year Uh, i agree i see that unfortunately i see that a lot around here because we're so you know lawyer doctor you know type type of professions and we tend to want our kids to do similar things because it pays well and you have to be careful because i've known some situations where like hey look i I just you know i want to go to carnegie hall and play you know i don't want to really do what parents did and so i think having that conversation up front is important i think you're right i mean and the other thing is the trade schools i think are way undervalued by parents because I know plenty of people that you'd be shocked. At, oh, well, yeah, they're an electrician. They're a plumber. I go, well, you realize they make three times as much money as you? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, you, if they're good at what they do and they love it, that's the key. If you love it and you're good at it, you're probably going to do pretty well in whatever the profession is as long as you understand how to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's critical. And I think that's part of this screening process where the trade schools. Do you have any, like, recommendations if somebody thinks, hey, look, maybe I do want to go to a trade school? Are there any... Um, entrance, you know, processes there as well that maybe they should consider? Typically, your district will
2: have a, let's say, a trade school or, you know, in my, in my school district, I'm in Central Bucks School District in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Right. They have the Middle Bucks Institute of Technology. You can go and visit. So look into one of those opportunities where they have a night where families can come in and just walk your kids through the different programs that are there. See what they offer. And what you'll hear What I heard repeatedly that night was how many of these teachers are getting texts or calls from employers saying, hey, do you have anybody? Right. Who do you like? And a lot of these kids are going on to great careers and really doing well. The guy that I talked to in the horticulture program, he said, some of these kids are making more than I am two years out of school.
1: Right. No, they're very well paying jobs. And I think that a lot of people don't really understand that it's not. A step down is actually, in many cases, a step up. One, lifestyle-wise, if they like it, they're going to enjoy it more. Their life is going to be much more enjoyable. And they're going to be doing something that they like and, and make a decent living. And you can make a decent living in a lot of these trades, which I think many people don't understand. And it's more of a hands-on curriculum, which for some kids works better than sitting in book learning. Right, right. So uh, this has really been awesome. Do you want to kind of wrap this up for us and just kind of walk us through that thing one more time, like uh, how we do all this and how we get started and make sure we get to the right school? Yeah, absolutely. So my biggest piece of advice is
2: just to be realistic. Keep your options open. Don't fall in love with one school. And when when you go to look at this decision, don't just look at the academics and the social piece. Really consider the financial piece what the schools are gonna offer you, and be realistic about which schools, you want your, which schools you can afford. And from that basis, you can either work with somebody like me that can make it easy for you, save you a lot of time, that knows the system inside and out, or you can try to do it yourself. You know, make a spreadsheet, look at the different schools, go to each of their websites, map out what they offer, map out what's available, and see where your child will fall in that applicant pool. But whether you do it yourself or whether you work with somebody like me, just keep in mind that the the number that they offer you is not the final offer. That there's there's a school out there for every child if you wanna go to school. If you don't wanna school, if you wanna go to a trade school, that's a whole different thing, but you can do that. But there's a school that's gonna offer you more money that's gonna be affordable for your family. And I recommend that you consider that and make sure you Factor that into your decision as opposed to just sending them any old
1: place and saying, well, we'll just pay for it and figure it out. Right. Yeah, that's never a good strategy. Well, Ryan, this has been awesome. I appreciate it very much. You've been listening to Master Your Finances. Have a wonderful day.
0: That was this week's episode of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Tune in every Sunday at 9 a.m. to expand your knowledge in building and managing your wealth. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Master Your Finances to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University.